1: Uh, Roxanne Hodge, Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, today I have a colleague um, that I met earlier this year um, at an event um, and uh, Trent is someone that uh, was quite inspiring when I met him based on the story that I'd heard over I think uh, dinner in Florida. So Trent thanks so much for taking your time.
0: Oh, very pleasurable. Thank you for having me.
1: So uh, I'm going to read a, um, a bit about uh, his name is Trent Thoreau, and um, a bit about his bio. He's an inspirational speaker. He speaks to conferences and companies about leadership's role in the organizational heartbeat or the organization's heartbeat. Trent is also a chief financial officer, a graduate school professor, an author, and an endurance athlete. Um, According to well-placed sources, he's a passionate lover (laughs) And after an accident, which left him paralyzed, he created a foundation to provide durable medical goods for those with spinal cord injuries. That's me. Yes. That's you. Every part of it. So Trent, you know, when I um, remember kind of overhearing things, um, when we were chatting, all of us in Florida, what, what inspired me the most is, you know, in life, a lot of people that get into a tough time, I often say it's like, it's kind of like a fork in the road. Uh, That's the perception that I, I kind of see, you know, people going through where they kind of could go down one route or they go down another. And obviously your, um, your accident, which I, you know, I'd love to hear a bit more about what happened and for you to kind of tell, tell us what happened that, um, to you with that accent
0: and what's, what you've been doing since. Surely, surely. Well, uh, we can get, we can get to the accent in a minute. You were asking the question about what happens before, right? Yes. Yes. You know, it's, it's funny how these, um, you come to these crossroads in life. And in many times there are no street signs to tell you which direction you have to take. It feels like you're in the, you know, somewhere in the the old west and there's just a, uh, two perpendicular streets. And uh, you're standing there not sure which way to go. And um, you, know, you, have, you have gut instinct, you have feel, you have passion that pulls you one way or the other, but it's not always known. And sometimes when you take one path, you're doing it at the, um, at the cost of, uh, of another path. And you would hope that you've made the right decision, even though you don't always know which way is the right way. Mm-hmm.
1: So you got to that path. I mean, prior to you know um, your accidents, I'm sure. Like, what were you doing pro- before the accident? Were you teaching before the accident? Well, um, before
0: be- before my accident, I was um, I was self-employed. Mm-hmm. I was uh, a family, a uh, uh, wife, uh, two children, young, and I was living a a very um, very um, Um, Middle of the road, uh, suburban lifestyle, Uh, work, home, children, uh, a little bit of uh, television at night and go out for dinner once a week. And it's your typical take the kids to soccer, suburban lifestyle. Mm. And it's funny how in many ways we can get uh, complacent in those lifestyles. And it was great. Uh, It was really great because it was very comfortable and humans adapt easily to their environment. And I had adapted very easily to this suburban environment, but I wasn't doing any good for the community. I was doing good for myself and my family solely. And this path that changed is, um, you know, after this accident is what, what changes that and, and gives me a sense of awareness that I didn't have uh, before. It gives me a sense of, um, how much more I can get done in a day than I thought I could, in the past. So I was working regularly. Um, and um, I had just started teaching as a hobby. And truthfully is to say, it gives me one night out of the house a week, because when you have two small kids, you need one night out of the house.
1: So you're kind of, you know, and I think so many people can re- relate to that, right? Like, you know, kind of you're working hard, you're in that kind of rote kind of situation day in, day out. You're with young children. So obviously there's certain things that you curb. You may have passions, of mm-hmm. course, but maybe they're a little bit kind of um, jumbled up with everything else that's going on.
0: Sure.
1: And then I'm sure you're living a pretty good life. Your children are probably having a good, uh, you know, experience with their parents, those types of things. But what kind of accident was it? What, what happened?
0: Well, so um, the, um, I was working on a Monday evening. It was September 23rd and I got home about 830 that night. It was a long day and it was a frustrating day. I normally don't get home that late. I didn't have a workout in the morning and Monday mornings. I normally would have played basketball with uh, a group of guys at the YMCA. I didn't. I came home and I decided I want to go for a kayak. The kids were already in bed. I want to go for a kayak ride. I live on a, uh, an inlet outside of Narragansett Bay, and so I walked out the stairs, in the back, and just in my t-shirt and pair of shorts, went out kayaking, and it was a beautiful night. It was um, warm. It was a full moon, mm. and the full moon was overhead, so I could see clearly, and there was no wind, so it was nice and calm on the bay, Kind of went out for a ride, and on my way out to this point, Nayett Point, which was about uh, two miles or so from where I, uh, where I lived, on my way out, and the only boat I saw was the Providence to Newport Ferry. It was a high-speed ferry that runs almost like a bus, a shuttle, um, out in the channel. It was perfectly quiet. In fact, it was so quiet, I had my, uh, my radio with me, and I was listening to the Monday Night Football game as it came on. I get out towards May Point, and I turned around and I'm making my way back. And I hear another boat in the water. And I took a look and somewhere well behind me is just a single boat, smaller than the Providence Ferry. And I paid it not a lot of mind. Another minute later, I still hear the boat and it's it's coming near my direction. So I steer the kayak, I steer offline just a little bit, and then I hear them getting louder. And I look, and this, and this boat is, it's, it's coming down on me. I mean, it's, it's tracking me. And I can't believe, I'm thinking, it must be somebody who's just you know, out you know, joyriding, right? They're gonna give me a quick buzz by. And, and so I take my paddle, and I hold it high in the air, and I yell behind me, hey, hey! And I'm trying to get their attention. To, to swerve, but they don't, and they're still coming, and and it's only seconds before they're going to, they're going to hit me. Um, and I and I start making decisions in my head what I have to do, and I know I can't be in the boat because if the boat, if it hits me, the the propellers in the boat are going to hit me in the head and chest, and and it'll just just kill me instantly, and so I thought the best way to get out would be if I could get out of the kayak and maybe go under the boat. And that way, I, the boat could go right over me. So I roll out of the kayak. And I try to push over my legs, which does really nothing because pushing a kayak, it's like pushing air. And I go down and I take one big breaststroke pull to try to go deeper in the water. And I can appreciate the Doppler effect because I can hear the pitch of the engine getting higher as it gets closer to me. Right. And then I get hit by the boat. Hmm. And and getting hit by a boat feels like getting tackled in football. Big linebacker tackles you and it knocks all the wind out of you. And then the propellers got me. Hmm. The propellers caught me four times From the center of my lower part of my rear end right up to the upper part of my back on the left side. And that felt like someone was taking a two by four and just with four hard swings right through the middle of my back. Painful, scary. The force of it threw me deeper into the water, into the dark water. And when I'm underwater, I, I couldn't see. I've lost a good amount of my breath because whatever I tried to hold, the, the boat knocked it out of me. Mm-hmm. And I try to blow a bubble to figure out which way is up, and I just can't see it. I realize I can't use my left hand. And I realize that I can't feel my legs. Or I can't move them. I can't, I'm trying to kick, and I, I know I, I can't. And so with my, with my right arm, I'm, I'm essentially just trying to move water and it, it, it moves me towards the top. I get to the top and I'm able to take a breath. From that vantage point, I'm, I'm facing north of the bay. I see the boat just driving away from me. Now, I don't know what type of damage it was done, but I know it wasn't good. I take my one hand and I, and I reach behind me to see, you know, maybe I can feel and I touch what I think is an exposed rib. And I'm scared. I'm absolutely frightened, and I drop under the water because I've got nothing. I pull myself back up and support myself. I try to yell to the boat, but it sent these electric shocks right through me, right through my body. The, um, I started started to wonder where uh, how I was going to go from there. I know I couldn't, I, knew I couldn't use my hand. I know I couldn't use my legs. The scariest part for me that I realized at that moment was that I didn't know how much blood I was losing. It was dark, I couldn't see, couldn't tell. But I assumed that if you got severed up by the by the propellers that I was bleeding pretty heavily. I looked to, my, I looked to the east and I saw Nay Point, beautiful houses over there, big, big 10, 20,000 square foot lots, 30,000 square foot lots, big houses. It was about a few hundred yards away from me, which back when I was in college, and I was a swimmer in college, would have taken me a couple of minutes, hundred yards a minute. So I start to make my way over and I can still see the, the boat going away from me, but then it stops. It, ju- it just stops in the water and parks. So I stop and park and just watch to see what's going to happen. The boat turns, but it, it doesn't turn towards me. It turns the other direction, but it's coming down the bay. And they're trolling. They're looking for something. I, I think they're looking for me. They're looking for what they hit. Oh. As they come down, I have a decision to make and probably the, maybe the biggest decision I've ever had to make in my life. Do I swim to the shore, find help? I can see the houses, I can see lights on. I think though, well, if I get to the shoreline, how do I get to the house? If I get to the house, at nine, something at night, what if they don't answer the door? I look at the boat and I say, if I go to the boat, what if they don't see me? I'm gonna be deeper in the bay with no way out. So I'm, I have this decision and I'm, I'm thinking stupidly. It's amazing how much clarity you get in these situations and how, how wide your thinking is. I was thinking, I've seen these news shows or uh, 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 news uh, reports where they'll show fishermen lost at sea. And the next thing they show are the pictures of the children crying on the shore. And that's what I'm envisioning in my head that, you know, the, the, the new local news is going to take pictures of my children crying on the shore. I make the decision to go to the boat. And so I change direction and go back deeper into the bay to follow them or to get to them. I try yelling again, but it's just electric going through my back. As they get closer, I can see them. They have a flashlight up. They're looking. And they go right by me. They just go right down the bay by me. They didn't see me. I'm really frightened now, Roxanne, because I'm afraid they're gonna find the kayak wherever it is, I can't see it, but wherever it is, and they're gonna stop there. And so now I've made my bed, I'm deeper in the bay, and I change direction again and go south, following them. I just follow them. A couple of minutes later, they stop, they, they turn around, pick up speed to come back it's there that they they see me hmm. take me to the boat, bring me to rescue and uh, bring me to the hospital where the whole new of the journey starts
1: Wow how did like you had one arm working
0: one arm
1: you're barely, now I'm thinking if you can't scream um, and that's an electric shock, you've, you've severed something significant, I would think, or just the sheer pain of what you, what's, what's been kind of um, cut in your body, something. Yeah,
0: you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I they, the, the, blades severed all the major muscles on the left side of my back and they carved out five pieces of my spine. But goodness. by, by the grace of whoever, uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't, it didn't cut the spinal cord. The, the shock I was feeling was the pain of the open wounds mm. to, uh, that, was, that was causing the pain at the time.
1: So what happened when you saw the people on the boat? When they finally saw you?
0: Okay, they, they started yelling at me. They were yelling at me. What were they yelling? Well, I grabbed onto the railing
1: mm-hmm. and I,
0: I couldn't pull myself up. So they, they come pull me up and they're yelling at me for, for ruining their night something they bring me on the boat and they think I could stand Then they let me go and I collapse face forward onto a table that was in front of them I'm wearing just my white t-shirt and they can see that it's soaked with blood and it gets very quiet real quick mm.
1: so they didn't realize you were in the water
0: they didn't know what they hit oh, okay they they had sometime later thought they might have hit a lobster trap pot mm. which uh you know what that's that's sketchy on what they because that's a very hitting wood and hitting what they hit are two very different things. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. But
0: they didn't know. But after they saw me and they saw the blood on me, they promptly called 911 and made that boat go right to the marina as quickly as possible.
1: What a story. Okay. So so you go from suburbia. Life's kind of steady as you go. Not, not much ripple, like kind of the, you know, the levelness of life to that. And do you stay conscious on the way to the hospital or do you pass out?
0: Pure, pure conscious, purely conscious. It, to the point where I, I still I still remember the lights on the houses. Mm-hmm. And I remember where the streets, the cars were as we passed a couple of them, moving up towards the marina. Pure mm-hmm. consciousness. I could hear the voices, I could hear the rescue on the radio. I could hear the captain talking. I could hear the whispering. It was, everything was so quiet in my mind, I was able to absorb everything. And remember it. And remember it vividly. Wow. Vividly. Wow. It, I've never, never experienced that type of consciousness or, or self-awareness.
1: Mm-hmm. Before.
0: And it, it must be some mechanism inside the human body. And I, and I know I'm not the only person that's had this. So it must be some mechanism that, Humans go through when they have something traumatic happen. It's why we remember where we were when this you know, I remember when.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they take, I would assume they take you right in and um, did they perform surgery immediately on you or what happened next?
0: The, the first thing, um, they, they, they brought me in and they, they put me into this, um, it's like a, like a steel table. It always says what you would see, it, like you would see in a morgue, right? You would see the dead bodies on steel tables. So they put me on a steel table and they wanted to get me prepared for surgery because they needed to, um, you know, they needed to close everything up. I was still bleeding pretty good, but they didn't cut anything. They didn't cut any veins or arteries. So I wasn't bleeding out.
1: Wow.
0: Another miracle of sorts. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: But they said they decided before they could bring me in for surgery that they had they, I had quite a bit of bacteria. The blades being in the water are just are just a harvesting ground for bacteria, and all that bacteria got into my body when the blades went through. Plus, being in the water for as long as I was, right? And they needed to clear all that out, so they told me that they were going to irrigate me. Just want to tell you, it didn't sound very. And irrigating meant that they were going to take a high-pressure hose and and apply it uh, to me. Mm. And Roxanne, I've never felt a level of pain as when they start applying it. I'm I'm lying. They've cut open my back of my shorts. They've cut open my shirt, and I'm lying on this metal just holding the top front of it. And my wife has come in at this point, and they're hosing into the open wounds and I'm making sounds that was just,
1: mm-hmm.
0: just un- I've never felt anything like it
1: mm.
0: we went through the plot I'm cold I'm wet and they they take me up to surgery the last thing I say to the surgeon am I going to see my am I going to see my wife and children again and the surgeon looks at me he goes I'll do the best I can not the most reassuring answer I was hoping for.
1: <laughs> well, they have to give you that objective. Yeah, you know,
0: I guess you're you're, answer, you're right. right. Yeah, I, you know. But again, yeah. if he lied to me, I wouldn't know I'd been dead. So <laughs> fortunately he was right. i hope he did and he was. I woke up the next morning in the hospital, bed, alive, but unable to um, unable to feel my anything below my waist. I was able to use my feel my left arm again, but unable to feel anything below my waist.
1: So what did you think? Like, I mean, first of all, I'm going to say, you're saying, thank you, God, I'm alive, first of all, because it, technically, from all the things that you dodged there, you had everything that potentially meant that you could have died a couple of times, going backwards, not being able to swim, drowning, lots of things could have happened, but it didn't happen. And you go into surgery, you get up the next morning. And you think, okay, I'm alive, but now you can't move. So then what happens? What 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 starts to happen for you at that
0: point? Going back to the whole point, I, I I'll say this to people. For for as bad as everything went, everything after that went perfect. I I had that horrible accident that one moment. But after that, yes, they found me. They called the rescue, they took me to the hospital, good sir. Everything else seemed to fell into place. I, I was very fortunate because it could have gone horribly different.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. that day I'm despondent. I'm I'm facing the the prospects of being paralyzed and being in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. which is daunting because I'm an athletic guy. I played golf, I played basketball, I played softball. If I had a ball, I'd play it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm competitive. If I, to, to a point where if I walk in a men's room and somebody walks in the men's room next to me, it's a race. And (laughs) <laughs> it's what it is everyone's competitive so the um, th- the prospect of losing my ability to, to, to walk was was very daunting at night came around the first night I have um, you get those finally the moment by yourself and I start to reflect what am I going to what am I going to do they came and squeezed me my toes as the measurement they couldn't, um, no sensation. The next day goes by, that night, no sensation. It was eight o'clock at night, and I realized eight o'clock at night's the time that I used to put my son to bed. He was three, his name was Max. I'd put him in bed. He'd get a, a horsey ride from me every night, whether it was watching TV or playing games or uh, reading the story. I'd get on all fours and go to give him a horsey ride and he had choices. He could choose from the um, the uh, the bucking bronco, the slow and stupid, a slow and stupid horse would just stupidly walk into the wrong room and you know, come back and forget how to get to his bedroom. But his favorite was the fast and sleepy horse. This would be a horse that would take off like a bolt and then suffer sudden bouts of narcolepsy. You have shake a horse. To oh. It was eight o'clock. I'm thinking about that night. I wanted to do that again. That's what I really missed. I wanted to do that. I grabbed some pen and paper next to me and I created what I look at as the most important document of my life, more important than the Magna Carta, more important than the Declaration of Independence. I wrote down number one in my life, I'm going to walk. Then I restarted, well, what's number two? I'm going to climb a flight of stairs. Number three, I'm going to lift my children. Four, I'm going to go to work. Five, I'm going to make love to my wife. Six, I'm going to go watch the Red Sox play. As I'm thinking these things through, I go, you know, Trent, if you're going to make a list about things you want to do in your life, you might as well make it exotic. You know, all those things I've done before. So number seven, I'm going to run a marathon. Number eight, I'm going to climb a skyscraper. Number nine, I'm going to do the Ironman. And number 10, because I got a little OCD in me, I can't leave a list with just nine. I, 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 wanted, I was a swimmer, I said, I wanna do a swim that's never been done. I originally thought the English Channel. I said, no, I wanna do some swim, and I just didn't know yet, but I said, I said, um, um, you know, I wanna do, 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 a, do an adventurous swim. And I made that list, and I've kept that list, and I lived by that list to move my life forward through my recovery. And ultimately, the journey past just the physical recovery.
1: So you lost the physical, and then it woke up everything else in you that you said kind of lay dormant to some degree. Like, you know, and all of us can, I think anybody listening to this can so relate. I can relate to this. You know, you kind of do things, you, you know, you have the career, you work really hard, your kids are young. Mm-hmm you're tired. You're just, you're like, you're saying, you're trying to get a couple minutes, you know, alone before you have to do it all over again. And after a while, it becomes like the slow spin right in sure. the, in the dryer. And, you know, and then you, you kind of lose sight of certain things. Not that that's not a great place to be, but it sounds like it just woke up something. Now, like you said, like I can do these things, but what else can I do?
0: Sure. 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 It, it really did. it, I never, I I tried to run a marathon once and I, my friend had done it and we were in our late twenties and I said, well, if my friend Jay can do it, so can I. And I went for a run. I said, I got to start training today. I went for a run. It felt like forever. Mm -hmm. I came back exhausted. I said, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to measure how far I went just to prove it was 1.2 miles. (laughs) <laughs> this is horrible. Just have a
1: couple more to go
0: <laughs> that, is, that, that was my marathon training for my life. before before this before this uh, event happened
1: so before i'm interested because um, this you know me me as being a mental health and wellness expert okay. right you're laying on
0: your back i am on my back i'm on my back yeah and you're now remember I'm a passionate lover According right, to, well, and, so we're talking and another, to the another,
1: yeah, yeah, like meaning, <laughs> meaning that you are thinking, I'm not even moving now, right? Right. You've got, I mean, I'm going to assume you had a lot of pain. And- no,
0: surpri- surprisingly, no, I didn't. Because lying in the hospital, they give you plenty of things for the pain.
1: Right. So you're That's not really it. feeling the, the, the pain as you're recovering. I'm not. Okay, not okay.
0: While I'm in the hospital, I'm not. Right. Okay, pretty well medicated.
1: Okay. So at some point, how long does it take you before you start to feel anything again?
0: It takes, uh, it takes me uh, about a week. about a week. What happens so- is and what happens is that because uh, I, my, my cord wasn't cut, but the damage around, all around it, including the spinal uh, column itself was cut. It created um, a mechanism that it like, closed itself up. The trauma closed everything to protect the spine. Mm. And that closing is what stopped the, the feeling from transmitting down into my lower half. So it didn't damage. It was it was just more protective. The body protecting itself.
1: Well, the, the body almost battened down the hatches to take care of you. Intuitively, the body knows mm-hmm. how to repair itself.
0: Good maritime uh, metaphor.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of like, goodness. And then you're thinking at this point, I'm not moving. Right. And of course, any of us, any, any person listening, I was going to think, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. Right? So- with that list before you moved, did you look at it all the time and did you, did you, did you envision yourself moving? Did you start to think about you know, those things that you would do with your son, what you would do with your wife, um, getting back on your kayak? What did you do when you weren't moving or were you feeling sorry for yourself?
0: Well, the answer is yes. I was There was quite a bit of regret. There was a significant amount of regret for being there. There was certainly an amount of, why did I deserve this? I'm a good guy. Mm. I, I didn't deserve this. There was quite a bit of self pity mm. self-loathing as well. It, because when you're in a hospital like that, you're, you spend a lot of time alone. I mean, the nurses, they come and go, but that's it. They come and they go. Family members can stay for a little bit, but you spend quite a bit of time to have to come to some mental uh, acceptance of what fate may be. And the question is, for me, well, which fate was I looking to accept? And I, and I, and I don't mean to express that I have any significant power that, that stopped me from being paralyzed, not at all. And it's probably just once again, just my, my really good luck in life that I wasn't. By whatever fractions I wasn't. But when I was making this list, I don't want people to, to assume that well he mentally didn't get him keep paralyzed it's not true at all I think we'll talk later maybe some of my work with with the spinal cord community and I, I'm careful with those folks because some of the most of those folks will never walk of course and I was I was at a function where I was introduced as the man who walked and I'm thinking that is the worst way to think of it um, my situation was different mm-hmm. it's different but what is the same, I think, is, is how people view what they're going to do afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I, the roses smell different, the flowers smell different, Life, the air was different. When I got out of a hospital, I felt born again, I felt rejuvenated, I felt new, I felt different. I was able to uh, accept sensory items around me that I just never really would have appreciated. The mold that was on the north side of my house bothered me. It didn't bother me before. <laughs> you know, stupid things. But yeah. but I was I had a greater appreciation for life, significant more appreciation because of because of it almost being taken away.
1: Because I think the main thing that I hear you say is that all of us go through things in life. Right? So in your situation, it it puts you at a critical spot. All of us have been through stuff where we go through pain right but it's making that choice to decide am i going to deal with that pain or am i going to suffer Mm -hmm. and talking again with that fork in the road and sometimes people may go through what you're going through or had gone through and then they they create that that victim mentality or that poor me mentality instead of kind of like you said smelling the roses and recognizing i can actually do the slow and stupid um you know pony ride or horse ride with my son again mm-hmm. or you know I can enjoy sitting on that bay again and and, and and enjoying the sunsets or getting back in that kayak to get back in that kayak is symbolic
0: it uh, I you, you're absolutely right I we were on a camping trip um maybe four years later and I had not been in a boat subsequent in fact I had such PTSD one time I was driving down the road and I'm behind a boat that was being towed and I started shaking and I had to pull Mm -hmm. off the, I I suffered quite a bit from PTSD. I remember the first time I got back into a boat, we were on a a, a slow river and it was a canoe. And my wife was on the front, I was in the back and it was, I was shaking Mm -hmm. and there were no boats around. It was lazy. I had to do it at some point, I had to address that fear but yeah, that was, that was a tough day, I remember, having to come back and, and, and face that. That was one of the harder ones to do.
1: So tell me about um, how, when you go into organizations, and I know you speak a lot to organizations.
0: I do, so I talk about, I have a couple of things that I talk about. I, I use my um, financial acumen for 20 years as a finance executive, and I teach uh, business strategy at the graduate school level, and I study companies. So I'm able to use the story, part of the story that you heard here, uh, where I will talk about resilience, but I'm also able to uh, couple that into how I believe organizations operate. And I speak uh, predominantly to frontline managers, people that are, have just moved up to the ranks, and it might be one of their first management jobs, or, or uh, they uh, have been uh, for a while, but they're not at a C level. When you get to the C level, you've had a lot more training. You get business training. You get management and interpersonal skill training. But I find that many managers, Bob did really well, let's have him run a department. What makes Bob qualified to run the department? And I find that organizations don't do their employees a good service because they put Bob there and if it fails, then it's Bob's fault. No, it's the organization's fault. And so I try to bring a level of education to understand how are, how companies organizations work, I'd say that there is a heartbeat. You know, there is a circulatory system of of a company where information comes in, and it has to get analyzed and crafted strategy and executed out. And where these first line people need to come to play to that. So I've done that now for a couple of years. Interweaving this story has been um, has been pivotal to my doing it because. Um, it captures the audience. And I will talk a little bit more about some of the, the, the charity work that I've done because of it in light of how first-line managers can, can operate and think. So that's what I've been doing now for a little bit of time. And it's been very rewarding
1: mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. See,
0: to see your words put into action. People come back with your words. Boy, Trent, you talked about this, and I was able to do that. And it's very satisfying, as yes, you know as well.
1: Of course, of course. So you kind of take the the resilience story that fell in your lap, really, and to really translate it how it works out organizationally with people. Like, I mean, obviously, middle managers sometimes are the most thankless job you can you can get. I've been i I've been a middle manager multiple times in my career. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sometimes, you know, I says you sometimes they get shoved from the bottom and, and shoved from the top, right? They get squished. In the middle and they're the ones that really if they if you if an organization gets it right mm. with people like that that that's that's the that's your pebble in the rough there they yes. literally yes. you know you, you treat those people well they, if they can connect with people at the front line and translate the message down um the, and the front line person is your is the person that's kind of seeing um customers day in day out but if the senior executive doesn't appreciate or c-suite like you said appreciate what the middle manager does they might trivialize their, their role in the organization and maybe not treat them as well. So it's, it's really, really important. Mm-hmm. So you use your resilience to talk to them about what it's like to be a middle manager and how to kind of maneuver through tough times also.
0: Well, so my, what I'll talk about is I talk about middle managers are the people who have to figure out how to move rocks. They have mm-hmm. to figure out how to get the obstacles out of the way so they're able to perform better. And most middle managers don't know that. Most middle managers get stuck because they came up through the ranks. They understand how this operation works, how their operation works, but they Mm -hmm. don't have an appreciation for how it fits into a bigger, uh, where it fits. And so I have different uh, stories that I will use to make a manager or allow a manager to see through a very simple story, that where they fit in that organization, and if this situation happens, how you can apply it somewhere else. And some of the stories have silly names.
1: (laughs) Give me an example of a silly name.
0: Eat your broccoli.
1: Eat your broccoli.
0: (laughs) Eat your broccoli, that's a great one. (laughs) Blue's Clues, the moon is never as big as when you first see it. Mountains are only majestic from a distance. Okay. So these these are stories, and what happens is, uh, rather than being technical jargon, if I tell you a story about how mountains are only majestic from a distance, the next time you're in a team meeting, and this has happened to me where the owners come back and say, you know, Trent, I got, I got an email a couple weeks ago. You know, we started talking about mountains, Trent, and everybody in that room knew what I was talking about because a good story resonates with people. Technical jargon kind of leaves people sometimes.
1: So the metaphor, the metaphors in the
0: message. They do, they do. Yeah, and with the resiliency story, I've learned that people don't remember what you say to them, but they remember how you make them feel. Mm -hmm. And with a good story, they feel that they're in the middle of the situation themselves. And they have to make those decisions themselves in the story as opposed to being told. And so when I talk to organizations and such, this is the, the way I try to communicate.
1: For sure, because if you can get people to buy into the experience or the story, then they see their role. Like, you know, you can be the guy on the boat that says you just, you know, using your story to say you just wrecked by night or you're the, you know, you're the person, you're the one that had the long day and you just needed to get away from, you know, life that day and you thought I'm just gonna go out in this Um, you know and have some fun and look at what happened so there's so many angles that can come from that or just you thinking about the basic things like um, spending time with max and people thinking about you know do i really really get into the moment when i'm with my son or daughter or my wife or my husband you know so much of the relatability i think you're right you know because oftentimes unfortunately in people's lives it takes something traumatic or you know to for that
0: change to occur mm, it, it does it and it's a shame sometimes that but i guess as humans we're we always can't be self-aware there needs to be an inflection point because mm-hmm. and what, what are you going to be at uh, uh 25 years old and, and wake up one day and go today i'm going to see the world entirely different very hard to do right <laughs> very hard to do i mean yeah. uh, it, it takes some some level of epiphany for us to open a door because we like repetition, we like, most, most humans like repeating patterns. And it takes something to, to knock us askew to accept there's something else. I mean, otherwise, I never would've liked punk music. I would've been listening to Ellen John and Billy Joel my whole life. But I dated this girl, and she, she's like in a punk music, like, this is horrible. And I sat and listened, like, damn, I like this. I listen to punk music more than I stayed with her. So, just a matter. <laughs> So I'm
1: I'm uh, interested in you talk talking about the swim that you did. Tell uh, I I think I heard a little bit of the story, but um, that, that you started you decided to do an adventure swim. You call that?
0: Well, I so I've done I've done I've done three. Okay. So let me let me tell you about the the first one I did, and it's not the one that you and I talked about it at uh, when we met. If that's okay.
1: Yes, sure.
0: I finished the first nine items of my list, and and I should make sure or tell your audience that I walk. I've run the marathon, I've climbed the skyscraper, and I've done the Ironman, so I'm, I'm not in a, a chair. And I did all those items in the first four years after my accident, but I didn't do the swim. I kind of held on thinking about what I wanted to do. As the 10 year anniversary was coming around, it was a full year in advance, <coughs> excuse me, I, I was so uh, grateful of all the of all the way my life had turned out after the, the accident. I mean, I kept in mind the same guy that injured my back is the same guy that took me out of the water.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, um, I wanted to do something for a community of people that couldn't get out of the wheelchair. And I decided I was going to do this swim from point Judith to block Island. These are in Rhode Island. So maybe if your viewers care, they can go look this up But the point. Judith, the southernmost point of Rhode Island. And Block Island is an an island, a town, that is 12 miles directly into the Atlantic Ocean, off that point. And I said, I'm going to swim from one to the other, and I'm going to do the swim entirely backstroke as a sign of solidarity for the spinal cord community. I found an organization in, in Boston called Rise Above Paralysis. It's a peer mentoring organization that anybody in the New England area that has been paralyzed goes to this rehabilitation hospital. And what happens there is you are paired up with somebody with the exact same injury, C4 breaker as such. And that peer mentor helps you understand the physical, emotional, Mm
1: -hmm. how to get
0: around, how to manage work, family, and the like. After two years you're encouraged to come back to the hospital and pay it forward to the next generation. When I heard about this, I said, this is amazing. I I want to do something for these people. And I created a foundation to raise money for durable medical goods for that group. And I was going to use the swim to fund it. I met the executive director's name is David Estrada, who is a, police officer with the boston police station who was on his motorcycle got hit was paralyzed and i told him i said i'm going to swim into the ocean and i'm going to raise you fifty thousand dollars and his next words would change the rating of your your podcast (laughs) so we'll leave those out but he was like your throws says what can we do to help i said show up just show up and i'm going to run this the next thing I decided to do is, I, nobody's ever done this swim, it was unprecedented. I contacted the University of Rhode Island, they have an oceanography school. I said, there's, I'm sure going from up here to down here isn't that simple, because the, there's currents around. So put me a map together. And he did. He developed a map. And because the way the currents moved east to west, I couldn't quite get there directly. So I had to kind of swim out and come all set. Now, here's what makes the story harder. A week before we're gonna do it, and I was planning to do it on the 10-year anniversary of my accident. A week before, in the Southern Atlantic, a hurricane starts to blow. Hurricane Leslie, and it builds. On the eastern seaboard, they have these buoys that, that monitor water temperature, air temperature, wind speed, and waves. The waves outside of Block Island are somewhere one or two feet normally. On that Saturday, they get up to three. On Sunday, they're up to six. On Monday, they're up to nine. And Tuesday, they're up to 12 feet. And I'm getting nervous. The hurricane is slowed down, but waves come first. Before the storms always come, the waves are coming. I call the I call the, uh, the gentleman, I'm, that was helping me train, one of my coaches, Sever. And Sever is a, um, a monosyllabic speaker. and So I called him, hey Sever. He's like, yeah. I said, Sever, are you watching the news reports? Yep. <laughs> this is our conversation, right? And I said, uh, I'm, scared about these, uh, I'm scared about these waves. They're making me want to reconsider what we want to do. Maybe I should wear a wetsuit. Maybe I should swim freestyle, or maybe I should postpone it." And he's eloquent. Nah. I <laughs> <you> mean, nah. <laughs> he says, he goes, what's the worst that's gonna happen, Trent? You drown? I said, yeah, I could drown. He goes, good. We'll serve good scotch at your service. And so, he says, listen, you made a commitment to the spinal cord community. Mm-hmm. They're coming. You made a commitment to yourself to swim it. There are going to be hundreds of other people there watching it. The news media is focused in on it. And most importantly, Trent, you made a commitment to me. You're getting on that water, and you're going to swim this. And he was right. So I was going to go swim it. So that was on Wednesday morning. We find out that the storm is going to arrive on Sunday. Our swim is set for Saturday. And so Thursday night, I get an email from the oceanographer. And he writes, I effed up and I'm thinking, oh, this can't be good. And he writes that he made a mistake in the calculation by six hours. He said, Trent, if you swim the way you're going now, you're not going to make Block Island. You're going to make Long Island, New York. <laughs> and so, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? She says, well, I don't have time to run the models, but you've got to swim the other direction, essentially. I'm like, oh my goodness. So the day came. And I'm going there and I'm scared about what I'm going to face. I look at the water and the waves are now at six to eight feet and they're crashing hard. And I see all these people, about a hundred people to start. We're starting at six, 620, which is sunrise. That was the goal. And so I got there about half an hour before that. And we had a hundred people to start at before six o'clock in a desolate area. So I was, I was thinking these people are coming to watch a death. They're coming to watch somebody drown. These morbid, Folks, and then I saw my friend, David Strada in his wheelchair, and it filled me with a, um, a sense of strength that made me forget about what type of scotch they're gonna serve him on memorial service, and just to get into the water and, and go do it. And we made it, and we raised $50,000. Wow. And
1: when
0: we, when we got into the old harbor, I touched on mm-hmm. the North Shore. We made the, the currents were pulling us out and made the north shore by 150 yards before it pulled me out towards Long Island. Got back in the boat we moved all, uh, into the old harbor and there's a 270 degree panorama of people the island had come out to watch this all the residents a lot of residents as we motored in you could hear applause from around it and i knew i knew i done something good. My state representative is a quadriplegic and he was down at the beach level. Dave Estrada was down there with a couple other people in their wheelchairs. They, they took the boat in the eight-foot surf to come to this finish uh, to watch. But uh, we did something really good together. And subsequent to that, I've done two more charity swims to keep funding this foundation.
1: So that, uh, that accident really woke up a deep part of you that probably was already there I'm gonna assume, but it helped you, like you said, you, when you were being driven, that heightened sense of awareness, whatever we're gonna call it, something woke up in you that made you realize that you could do more. And that's probably you know being, um, not putting enough words into it, but something got triggered in you that said, I have to make more of my
0: life. It, it really did. And, I, and I, can't, I can't describe it adequately. Other than, I have a passion to help other people now. Mm-hmm. I was born, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm an only child, so it means I'm naturally selfish. Mm-hmm. And I've had to fight that
1: mm-hmm.
0: all through those years. After the accident, I don't have to fight it so much anymore. I find in me the, the desire to give my, give my money, give my time, give my efforts to people that need something, big or small. And it's become wow. very rewarding to do.
1: Wow. You know, I, I spent the time with you, but obviously we hadn't talked as in-depth. And I'm, I'm inspired by what you've shared. And, um, you know, oftentimes people that go through pain, you know, it's hard for them to see past the pain, right? Mm-hmm. Because it becomes so all-consuming. And yeah, I think um, having the pity party, we all would do that as human beings, but then ready to kind of look at the gift out of adversity, which is oftentimes what I talk about, which is definitely what you experienced, um, and then you made a difference, which is which is such an admirable thing to have done. So, Trent, if people are, I, mean, I know people are going to want to talk to you. They're going to want to, um, you know, have you potentially speak, um, you know, about. Uh, resilience, where, where would people get a hold of you if they wanted to have a chat with you about um, the speaking that you do either for management or resilience?
0: Uh, I to my website at www.trentthiru.com. And I'm sure on your uh, show notes, you'll put that address and it has my email and it has my personal cell phone number, which uh, people are, well, I put it there for a reason. Call me and it can be just to talk. It doesn't have to be about business. I'm happy just to talk to people because Everybody needs somebody to listen sometimes, and uh, you know, I've just found as part of my new calling, I do that as well. But, awesome. Uh, yeah, I um, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk to me today. You're right; we didn't get to, and, and you know what? Truthfully, I I didn't get to hear much enough about your stories. I know your listeners tune into you so they can so they can be favored with your uh, stories and insights.
1: Well, maybe I'll come and visit you and your podcast, and we can chat a little bit more about that. Well, it sounds good. Like um, So everyone listening, um, resilience is something that's, um, it's tough, right? I think we all get, we all go through pain to have lived. I often say to have lived means that you've had pain, but it doesn't mean to have, mean to, it does need not be suffering. And, you know, if you listen to Trent's story and I talk a little bit about my story, which you know that um, how many changes that I had made in a short period of time um, with kind of adversity in my own life. And it's, it's tough, but when you really kind of stop and slow and really connect uh, through it, then it really connects you with the things that are valuable. Like Trent talked about his family and, and uh, myself, I was doing certain things for certain reasons to recognize that, you know, life will serve us things that, you know, we don't expect, but we can make the most out of it. So for anyone wanting more information on me, you can go to RoxanderHodge.com. I'm a mental health and wellness expert. I, do uh speeches and i also do training so take care and we'll chat with you soon
0: thanks for tuning in to authentic living with roxanne creating the space for positive healthy change roxanne is a keynote speaker psychotherapist and coach to work with roxanne visit roxanderhaj.com blueprint we'll see you next time on authentic living with roxanne